Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to The Andy Rowe Show. In 2001, Stuart Campbell was arrested and later convicted for the abduction and murder of his niece, 15-year-old Danielle Jones. Danielle's body was never found, and Campbell continues to plead his innocence. This is the story through the eyes of Campbell's brother, Alex Sharkey, as he unpicks how his charismatic younger brother, who he once adored, turned into one of the UK's most infamous criminals. Before we get into the episode, Athletic Greens are offering our listeners an exclusive deal when you visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Andy. When you make your first purchase, you get a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs. I've been taking AG1 by Athletic Greens for about a year now, and I've never felt better. I take it as soon as I wake up every morning. One scoop contains 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced ingredients, probiotics, and adaptogens. Just visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Andy to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And if your company or you is looking to start a podcast, make sure you hit me up. Email me, andy at podroproductions.com. The podcast industry, I know it can sometimes feel a bit saturated, but it's still in its infancy. The size of the podcast market in 2021 was valued at just over 14 billion US dollars and is estimated to grow to 95 billion by 2028. It's not far away. Forbes reported podcast ad spend was 800 million US dollars in 2020 and will more than double to 1.7 billion by the end of this year. We're currently consulting and producing content for a wide range of clients so if you want to get involved email me andy at podroproductions.com. I hope you enjoy the episode. Alex Sharkey thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I just want to sort of start and kind of paint a picture of things from your early life and get an understanding of what your childhood was like and what you guys were like as brothers growing up and how similar or how different it was from a kind of a normal childhood what was childhood like for both of you normal childhood is something you only see from a distance isn't it you don't know what's normal when you are a child whatever is going on around you is is normal Um, It's only much later, you know, when you get into your late teens, perhaps your early 20s, that you really start to understand what might be considered a normal childhood. And our childhood, my brother and I, our childhood was anything but normal. I think most people would accept it was nightmarish. My father was a Scottish merchant seaman. He was a cook, but he was also a chronic alcoholic. I mean, he started drinking pretty much as soon as he could after he opened his eyes in the morning. He drank himself into a stupor every single time. And he was incredibly violent. He thought it was entirely fine for him to lose his temper, beat my mother viciously with his fists for any perceived slight. When I was about five years old, he decided, you know, he could hit me. I was big enough. So childhood, yeah wasn't great. Um, the 
the kind of good thing was that you would go away to sea for months on end. So there was some respite. Jeez. Man, that sounds unimaginable. I mean, tell me about Stuart as a boy. Like, what was he? What was he like growing up? There are a couple of things that always stand out when I think back. Uh, one was I was frightened of my father. You know, I was like intimidated by him. I kept my eyes down and my voice low, and did nothing to arouse his anger. My brother was much more fiery and defiant and braver than I was. And then on top of that, I wasn't a very attractive child, you know, and other children let me know that. When I was little, you know, I had this kind of Asian features, I suppose, for once, one of a better term. And, and there was a lot of kind of racist abuse, which was very confusing for me as a small child, because, you know, it's like, oh, your mum fucked the Chinese milkman or something like this. Weird stuff like that. Um, my brother, on the other hand, my brother, my brother looked like something from a Disney cartoon. My brother was like, if you imagine like a four or five year old Disney prince, you imagine these big brown eyes, you know, this beautiful little rosebud mouth, this beautiful lush black wavy hair, you know, and because he had this kind of defiant personality as well, you know, it's like he had a lot of charisma, even as a child. And kids were attracted to him girls especially little girls were they just wanted to be around him you know and i had the completely opposite experience you know no girls wanted to be anywhere near me and <laughs> life and and then the other thing was i used to get you know as i say this kind of abuse and sometimes it would it would tip into violence you know but my brother was incredibly loyal and ferociously protective of me and so even if a kid bigger than me started picking on me, my brother would, like, if he saw it, he would leap in, you know, fists and boots flying, you know, get the fuck off my brother, you know, leave him alone, bang, bang, bang. So up until, you know, we were 12, 13, we were, I would say, we were, well, we went to different schools when I was 11. That's when we started to separate. And a couple of years after that, by the time I, he was 12, 13, and I was 14, yeah, we we then we really started to kind of turn on each other. Is that when the violence started between you two? Yeah, it started between us two. By this time, my father was off the scene. My mother had managed to divorce him and get him out of the house, and 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 so um, she was working a single mother, supporting three children. I guess it was difficult to control the pair of us as we started to become adolescents. She found him in this boarding school place and he went off to boarding school. And that was also the beginning of him having a very significant change in his personality. As I say, he was always kind of defiant, but at the same time, he was always very loyal to myself, my sister, my mother, protective of us. But when he came back on the holidays from that school, he developed some other characteristic that I'd never really seen in him, which was a kind of scorn for the rest of us and a kind of arrogance towards us as if we were kind of somehow lesser than him. When you look at, so when he came out of high school, he was in and out of prison, wasn't he? Yeah, he started being incarcerated when he was about 15, I think. Yeah, Really? When he left that school. When 
he got out of prison kind of leading into Danielle going missing. So before that, and he's, he's out of prison. When, when did you first learn about Danielle going missing? I was living in Paris, working as a journalist there for English newspapers and American magazines when I got a call from my mom. You know, I would speak to my mom and I still do speak to my mom at least once a week, usually on a Sunday, call your mom, you know? Mm. And, um, but she called me on a Wednesday or a Thursday or something. I heard immediately there was kind of catch in her throat, you know, like a kind of sob. And I'm like, mom, what's wrong? And so this is 2001, June 2001. And what's wrong? And she said, Oh, you know, she started sobbing. And I'm like, tell me. And she said, the police have been round to see me about Stuart. And I said, What? You know, why would the police want to talk to you about Stuart? Because Stuart is a grown man. He doesn't live with my mother. My mother lives in North London. Stuart lives 35, 30, 30 miles away in Essex. He's married. Why would the police? Okay, yes, my brother had been in trouble with the police. He'd been to prison. He'd committed crimes. But the last time he'd committed a crime, as far as I knew at that point, the last time he'd any any trouble with the law had been what it must have been almost 20 years earlier. You see, right. so I couldn't understand why the police wanted to know anything about him anyway. And then on top of this, I couldn't understand why they would ask her. Well, he's she a different said, well, person in your mind as well. He's It's 20 years. He's, he's grown out of that phase of his life. Why do the police need to go and see your mum about him? Absolutely, absolutely. We'd all assumed at this point, Andy, that he was a sensible guy who had a troubled early life, but had calmed down, got on the straight and narrow, had his own little building firm, you know, worked for himself, but, you know, made money very nice wife. I knew at this point that she was pregnant as well and they were expecting their first child. So of course, you know, in my mind, they're all settled. Everything's mm. calm. Everything's going to be great. You know, it was already good. They bought a little house. It's a very nice little house, nothing too fancy, but still, you know, very comfortable. Everything seemed to be, you know, on the up and up really good, you know, so yeah, I was shocked. And I said, but why? Why would they talk to you about him? And she said, oh, it's about that girl. And I said, what do you mean, that girl? She went, you know, that girl. And I said, I, I, mom, I don't know what you're talking about. Don't forget, I'm in Paris, right? She's in London. And she says, it's on all the news. I'm like, it's not on the news here. What are you talking about? You know, this girl who's gone missing. And I said, I don't know anything. Yeah, this girl who's gone missing in Tilbury. So I said to my mother, okay, I don't think it's Stuart. I really don't think it's Stuart. A missing girl, that's not him. You know, his wife's just having a baby. It doesn't make any sense. And at this point, of course, I had no idea that he'd ever had any history of violence towards girls and young women. I had no idea that he'd ever abducted and imprisoned a young girl. So, of course, you know, nothing could be farther from my mind. You know, I just like, no, this is not possible. Mum, it's not possible. Well, she said, will you call him? I said, of course I'll call him and I'll call you right back. I'll sort it out. So I put the phone down, called my brother, went straight to voicemail. So I thought, that's funny. 
it's not usually that difficult to get a hold of him. I called his wife, went straight to voicemail. Mm. This is odd. Okay, she shouldn't even be at work now because I think she's on maternity leave. So I call him again and leave a message saying, hey, you know, I just spoke to our mom and blah, blah, blah. Please call me back. And then I went and looked at the BBC News website and it pulled up the story. I found it and pulled it up and it was like, oh, yeah, police are investigating the disappearance of 15 year old Danielle Jones. And I, I must have been reading two or three paragraphs until finally I realized, oh, my God, that's Danielle. That's his niece. And, you know, it was just, it was like something from a horror movie. First of all, it couldn't possibly be. But now I realize he knows that girl. He knows that little girl. She was, I met her once at his wedding when I was the best man and she was a bridesmaid. With your daughter? Along with my daughter, who was the other one. Two little girls. They went and got matching dresses made. Was there ever a thought at this point that your brother was involved? I know that there's these links, but surely you're thinking, nah, not Stuart. Yeah, absolutely, Andy. At this point, I couldn't believe it. I, I, no, 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 no. This is not what he does. It, it seemed like the weirdest coincidence, but mm. I thought, oh, they're just, they have to eliminate him from their inquiries. That's what this yeah. is. He called you after a while didn't he and you, you guys spoke yeah i he called me back you know i left a couple of messages and eventually got back to me yeah and um i asked him what was going on and uh he was pretty nonchalant about it you know he was um oh you know they're hassling me because you know they know i've got a little bit of form i've been inside it's just you know it's nonsense you know I realize now he kind of started hiding behind his wife's pregnancy. You know, I wish they'd just leave us alone. It's really upsetting Deb, you know, the baby's due soon. And, you know, she's really upset about it, as you can imagine. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that, that sounds awful. Well, yeah, you know, I can see how you would feel harassed and upset. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, initially I was sympathizing with him. Didn't you go for a drive with them not long after the murder? Yeah. You know, I'm in Paris, right? My mum's in London. My brother's in Essex, 30 miles east. And so I, I figured, you know, what I should do, I should go back and see my mum and kind of try to comfort her and calm her down, put her fears to rest and go and see my brother. I thought I should go and see him. You know, at this point, I was starting to think there's something not quite right with this picture, but at the same time, completely giving him the benefit of the doubt, thinking, well, you know, I should go and lend some support. So I said, listen, I'll, I'll come and see you. I want to come and see you. He's, oh, you know, well, you know, it's going to be a bit difficult because, you know, there's a lot of press hanging around outside the house. The coppers keep coming back here asking me stupid questions. I said, well, you know, just meet me for half an hour. We'll go for a cup of coffee. And he said, okay, then, you know, so I made a date to go and see him. And then in the days between making that date and me going, I got a call from Essex police, you know, a senior detective. And I started talking to him. He asked me, he said, listen, 
uh, we'd like to talk to you. And I said, well, we can do it now. And he said, no, no, I want to talk to you face to face. I don't want to talk to you over the phone because there's some stuff I want to explain to you about this case. You know, I don't want to do it on the phone. And I said, okay. He said, so shall I come and see you in Paris? And I said, well, I'm coming to London anyway. I'm coming to England anyway. So maybe I'll I'll meet you in London. And they said, oh, that would be great. (laughs) In fact, he said, oh, I was looking forward to a trip to Paris, but never mind. (laughs) Which was kind of funny. And um, so we agreed to meet in London and we met a friend's, I asked a friend of mine, can I meet these coppers in your house? You know, would you mind giving me your house or at least your front room for an hour or two? She said, yeah, sure, no no problem. You know, I'll be at work anyway, you can use my house. So I met these coppers. I met these two detectives in um, London central London. And um, yeah, they said, um, how well do you know your brother? <laughs> and I said, what kind of question is that? You know, he's my brother. Mm, you know, course. I grew up with, and I'm thinking, oh, who are these fools? You know? And I said, I know him, you know, it's my brother. I know him as well as anyone can know him. And they said, did you know he's been in prison? And I said, yeah, of course I know he's been in prison. I've visited him in prison many times. And they said, do you know why he was in prison? And yeah, I know why. They said, well, tell us. And I said, okay, handling stolen goods, stealing cars first, then handling stolen goods, then breaking an entry. He hasn't got any drugs charges. Uh, I don't think he's got any violence charges, nothing else. That's it, you know. And um, they said, no. Nah. And I said, what do you mean, no? Nah? And they said, that's not it at all. Is that what he told you? That's not it. I'm like, oh my God, right, you know. So this, we're going back. This is something I have believed for like 25 years more. And I'm like, what do you mean? And they said, well, did you know that he had his first conviction in, you know, I think 1974 or five, where he attacked a girl outside a pub, a 16-year-old girl, punched her face and left her with two black eyes, kicked her, stomped her, stole her purse. Oh, and sexually assaulted her before he ran away. Fuck. And I'm like, what? (laughs) And they're like, did you know that in the early 80s, he was convicted of abducting a girl and imprisoning her at knife point and making her undress and put on uh, some kind of costume so we could take photographs of her. I'm like, what? what? Uh, like, did you know that he also had several other charges brought against him of stalking, harassing, molesting, imprisoning girls? And those charges were dropped because the girls were too intimidated to frightened to testify against him hey oh what and then they're like at the end of the 80s did you know that he went to prison again for and i'm I'm like yeah i remember oh no no wait wait that's when he told me he was working in manchester and his wife told me that too so there was this whole web of deceit that his wife debbie had been complicit in and then I realized actually my mother had also helped cover for him. 
And then, you know, when I challenged her about it, not then, but much later, she told me, oh, well, you know, he told me it was a mistake. They'd got it wrong. The girl was trying to get him in trouble. My mother had just believed his side of the story. Was this about the time when you're speaking to these police officers? Is this when it starts to dawn on you that your brother could have done this? Yeah, of course. You know, when you're presented with evidence. I mean, that particular conversation I had with those two detectives, you know, at one point I became very paranoid. I thought, wait, maybe they're making this shit up. Maybe this is just, they're fabricating this to get me on their side so that they can pin this on him because they don't have anybody else. And at that point, my brother, I'd spoken to him maybe one more time on the telephone and he'd put across that theory. They haven't got anybody else. They haven't got any real suspects. They haven't got any real leads. And so I'm the patsy, you know, because I've got form, you know, because I've been in prison, they're going to try and nail me for this. And I was like, wow, the bastards, you know. Mm. Um, and so I had a moment where during this conversation with the police, I did wonder, and I said to them, you're not lying to me, right? Because, you, you know, if you're lying to me and it comes out, you know, I'm a journalist, right? You know, this like not a smart move on your part. And they said, no, we're not lying to you. And we're not worried that you're a journalist. You know, if you want, we can go to the station. We can pull the paperwork. I'll show you his record, his criminal record. So they then said to me, uh, look, you're going to see him anyway. You've told us. So we would like just to ask you this one thing. Try to, you were probably going to do it anyway, but try to get a feeling for whether or not he is guilty. You say Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Do you know him very, very well? You say you know, you can tell when he's lying, you can tell when he's telling the truth. And I said, yeah, absolutely. They said, well, don't confront him. Don't say, are you telling the truth? Are you lying to me? Don't do that. Certainly don't tell him, I think you're lying. They said, do not confront him because we're not sure. This is a couple of weeks after Danielle went missing. They said, we're not sure she might still be alive. He might have her locked up somewhere with some food, locked in to a warehouse or a disused factory or a basement somewhere she's got food and water but she can't get out nobody could hear it it's possible so we're following him and we don't want to tip him off you know that you've spoken to us that he's like he's being watched or anything like that but just see 
We want to know your gut feeling. That was the phrase they used. So I said, okay, fine, I'll, I'll do that. And so I went to see him. And uh, yeah, within five minutes, I knew he was guilty. I mean, just knew. Do you have a brother, Andy? I've got two brothers. Could they commit a crime like that and lie to you and fool you? I doubt it. I doubt that very highly. I'm sure if it was that much of a crime, you couldn't carry that and be normal. Something would have no, to change right? in you. Something would have to be different. Yeah, you couldn't act normal if you had that on your mind, right? It's not possible. And, and also remembering that this case was a national sensation at this point. Your brother was prime suspect. He was yeah. all over the press, every front page, being hounded by the press as well. Yeah, he had the press literally out at the end of his garden, like sitting out there for a couple of weeks. And as you say, it was on the front page of every tabloid newspaper and on the front pages of some broadsheet newspapers as well, on the TV. And the police operation at that time, it was the most expensive and most extensive operation, search operation in UK history at that point. You know, I think at one point they had 140 officers. They drafted in officers from Kent, Middlesex to help them, you know, other counties. That part of Tilbury, you know, it, it's marshland. Some of it is just open marshland with quarries and some of it is semi-industrial and there's lots of spaces between those two things. So there's a lot of places where you could put a body. So in other words, the search was enormous. It was a huge task. They dredged quarries, lakes, ponds, things like this. Um, Operation Spinnaker, it was called. So it's worth noting at this point that this was his wife's brother's daughter. Uh, he is not mm -hmm. incarcerated at this point, so he's free, could have helped in the search, as you probably would if this was your niece, you would be helping in the search. Yeah. I mean, you talk about yeah. this in your book, but it's quite, it is quite a big deal that he wasn't trying to find her. Yeah, I mean, it's a big giveaway, don't you think? I mean, you just said it mm. yourself. What would your reaction be if your niece went missing? You'd be out there, wouldn't you? What, what, what was his alibi? What was Stuart's alibi? So he said he was in this superstore, hardware superstore, huge place, you know, big warehouse full of everything, you know, all kinds of machines and tools and bolts and all that stuff. And the police said, so what did you do? And he said, well, I went and bought these. I had to spend some time looking for these bolts. I couldn't find them. Eventually I found them. And they said, so you bought them? And he said, yeah, I bought them. And they're like, what card did you use? Oh, I paid cash. Do you have the receipt? No, don't have the receipt. So they went to Wicks, the police detectives, and they checked. According to Wicks' inventory, nobody had bought any of these bolts for weeks, weeks and weeks. On top of that, they hadn't had any cash payment in any of the tills in that three to four hour period. On top of that, there was no the place is full of CCTV cameras to stop people shoplifting expensive tools and stuff like that. No sign of him on any of the CCTV footage. No sign of his van in the car park. So his alibi, such as it was, did not hold much water. And then on top of that, they triangulated his phone, you know, where they take three telephone cell phone 
mobile phone transmitters and they see where the phone pings and you know you find the point between the three signals and so they knew he wasn't where he said he was at that specific time because his phone had pinged and on top of that Danielle's phone had pinged around the same time which was around the time that he received a text message purportedly from Danielle and Danielle's phone and my brother's phone, their mobile phones were less than 50 feet apart when the text message was sent. I mean, what a coincidence. So, uh, yeah, that did for his alibi too. So alibi didn't really have one. He said, uh, apart from that, you know, he said that he was caught in traffic to waste some more time, you know, to use up the four hour period that he mm. absolutely couldn't account for. That's a lot of time. And those text messages that, Danielle sent weren't they fake yeah well they had a, a linguistics expert testify in the trial and he pointed out that all her text messages were in lower case always she never used the capital and the two text messages that my brother had purportedly received from her cell phone were in lock caps they were all in uppercase all capitals so the linguistic expert said it's absolutely impossible that Daniel Jones sent those messages. Can you remember what the text messages were or vaguely what they said? One, one of the second message says, um, tell mum, embedded in the text is the phrase, what have I done? Tell mum, I'm so sorry. And I realized this is kind of a subconscious message from Stuart to himself. What have I done? Tell mom, I'm so sorry. It's a panicked subconscious exclamation when he realizes the enormity of the crime and the trouble he's in for committing it. That's what, that's what, that's my theory anyway. The relationship because they've obviously got to have been kind of close for him to be able to get the phone or to be in the same situation where he can perform this crime. So how did he groom her? Debbie and her brother Tony, that's Danielle's father, were close. And so I think, you know, Stuart and his wife Debbie would go to Tony and Linda's house quite often, you know, for family get-togethers mm. and and then I know that my brother did some, you know, because, oh, I'm a builder, you know, let me do, oh, you know, your gutters need cleaning or, you know, do you want me to patch up that piece of wall? It's for, I'll clean that out and replaster it. And this kind of thing did some painting and stuff for them. And so he made himself handy and useful. They were used to having him around. So he was around, from what I understand, he was around the house. A fair amount and a friend you know and an uncle and you know part of the family and very cheery happy-go-lucky guy teasing the kids a little bit you know just enough to make them laugh never enough to make them cry the way you would expect an uncle to be i guess and then on top of that he at some point they were going on holiday the family from what I understand, he said, oh, this is a perfect time for me to do so-and-so in your house because it's a bit messy. I'll do it while you're away. Leave me a key. And they did. 
and he made a copy apparently because afterwards it transpired that while they'd been away on holiday he'd gone into danielle's bedroom and left some kind of little love note in her pencil case but yeah he certainly wormed his way into her affections he took her shopping apparently took her to the cinema it's later transpired that he groomed or he had other young girls that he was taking photos of right yeah yeah that's true yeah and he apparently never really stopped doing that. He used to go around handing out a business card with his name and a phone number on it. He passed himself as a, off as a glamour photographer and would approach girls on the street. Did you ever go and see him after he was convicted? No, he won't see me. He refuses to acknowledge me. No, no, um, no. He will, I've written to him a few times. Um, but he, I, I gave up years ago because he just doesn't acknowledge. He doesn't write back to me. He recently came up for parole as well, didn't he? Yeah, that was an automatic parole consideration. My brother was given 20 years tariff. And so after 20 years, once your tariff is served, if you haven't actually committed any other crimes or had like a terrible behavioral record in prison you are automatically considered for parole so yeah he was denied at the very first instant automatically in two years time it will come up again do you think he will get it out well i can't see how he does because the parole board has to decide whether or not he still poses a risk, a significant risk to the public. So as long as he's never admitted his crime, expressed remorse for it, and therefore divulged the whereabouts of Daniel's body, I don't see how he can be regarded as a non-risk. Didn't you write him a letter saying, mate, just, just tell us where the body is, let Daniel's family move on? Well, I didn't write him a letter saying that, but the book opens and closes with an open letter to him and in that open letter yeah that's what i say it's time you know no everybody knows if you think there was even any possibility that anyone in britain still thinks you're innocent disabuse yourself of that delusion because everybody everybody knows you're guilty everybody so what are you protecting you have no reputation you know there's nothing for you to preserve by denying that you committed the crime you know just admit it do the right thing give tony and linda jones finally some closure some ability to kind of close this terrible terrible thing You've done this horrible pain that you've inflicted on them for decades. You know, just do that. And, you know, and and so I did say, you know, if you did that, I would actually make a point of trying to help you reintegrate yourself into society, you know, to find some kind of life. But I, I tend to think now that he's probably, he knows that he's, psychologically institutionalized in other words i think he knows that he would be utterly incapable 
of operating as a free man. Do you ever wonder if you have inherited anything that runs through his veins when it comes to being capable of such a thing? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I wondered, I mean, I looked at him and I thought, how can you have deluded? I mean, you, you deceived me. You deceived everybody in your family. You groomed your wife from the age of 15. You know, she just went along with whatever you said. She was just kind of docile and a willing accomplice, you know, because you'd groomed her. Does she still think he's innocent? No, she did at first. You know, she insisted for the first couple of months that he was innocent. But eventually she realized that he was guilty. And then she bolted, basically. She changed the name and disappeared. We mentioned at the start of the show how Stuart changed when he went to high school. I think it's probably a good time to revisit that because there was something that came out later on that kind of started to see mm. you putting together, piecing together a few pieces of the puzzle to try and rationalize maybe why his personality changed so drastically when he went to high school. Yeah. Um, so as I say, you know, when he was 12, I think, he went off to a private boarding school. My mother had managed to get him a scholarship place. So yeah, it was, it was kind of a fairly fancy school. But then when I was researching the book, the school was called Eccles Hall, Eccles Hall. And it was in a place called Quiddenham, which sounds like something from Harry Potter. In fact, it was a little bit Harry Potter-esque, the school, you know, with uniforms and there was this grand building in these grounds with woods around it. Anyway, so I googled Eccles Hall Quiddenham and the first five hits that came up were all about a man called Tui, T-U-O-H-Y. And this Mr. Tui, David Tui, that's it. He had just recently committed suicide by throwing himself into the Thames. Why? Because he had been convicted a couple of months earlier and was about to be sentenced the very next day, definitely to prison for historic sexual offenses, namely molesting young boys while he was the headmaster of Eccles Hole in Quidnham during the years 1968 to 1976. Bang in the middle of that was when my brother attended. And as I told you, my brother was this incredibly beautiful little boy. You know, very charismatic, very beautiful, very attractive to all kinds of people. And so it seemed to me, I have no evidence, of course, but it seemed to me impossible that he couldn't have come to the attention of a paedophile headmaster in his school. It seems very strong possibility that the paedophile headmaster had noticed my brother. And then I thought back to the way his behavior changed and became so much more cold and distant and scornful and secretive as well. Very secretive at that time. It's such a, such a sad story all around, isn't it? It's a tragic story. The greatest tragedy is the Jones family, Tony and Linda Jones, Danielle's parents. That's the real tragedy in this story what they've had to go through and still going through through it. I mean, still, still waiting to find out where to get their daughter's remains, to be able to put them in a place and go, 
there she is. We can go there. We can lay a little flower on the, on the grave. We can say a little prayer. How could you do that to someone? I mean, it's one thing. Murder. Maybe the police said to me, and it's perhaps just a comforting thought. Perhaps they were just trying to make me feel better. But they said, we think he did it on the spur of the moment. Didn't plan it because everything... All the circumstances indicate to us this was unplanned and, and was done on the fly, which is why it's so badly, like his, he didn't have an alibi or anything mm. like that. And the phones and, you know, if he thought it through at all, you know, he probably, I'm sure he's smart enough to have realized afterwards, mm, if I'd been planning that, I could have done it a lot better. And so they're saying it was probably a spur of the moment thing. They think... It escalated out of something that was not meant to be a fatal interaction, but ended up becoming a murder. And then he panicked and then was never able to actually say, I panicked. I'm sorry. I wish I could take it back. I wish this had never happened. Let me tell you what happened. It's tragic because he, he has never been able to do that. And I believe that's Actually, yeah, I mean, he was grooming her. He was a pedophile. It's disgusting. But I don't think he planned to kill Daniel Jones. Do I think he killed Daniel Jones? Absolutely. I know it without a shadow of a doubt. Do I think he hid her body? Absolutely. Do I have an idea why he just can't tell the truth? Shame. The shame's already there, like you said. Defiance. You know, that has been a theme in his personality, as I told you, since... He was three. Defiance. Fuck you. To the world. To my father, who was the world, you know, who was the controlling principle of the world from the minute we could lift our heads and look, you know. And, and it's to do with shame as well. But if you think, Andy, if you consider for a second that he may have gone from our family home, which had calmed down and got relatively, although he and I were, you know, fists against each other at the drop of a hat still you know he didn't feel terrified or anything like that so we'd gone from this very brutal violent very dangerous situation where my father had been around so we'd calmed down then apart from he and i having this kind of butting heads thing it was relatively calm but then if you imagine he's gone to he went to this school if he were abused by a man in a position of power I think that would put some shame and anger into you that I can imagine you carrying for the rest of your life. And then why be interested in prepubescent or pubescent girls? Why children? There must be some kind of a link between. I don't know. Maybe he wasn't abused. This is just entirely speculation. But it kind of would corroborate. It would kind of chime with his actions. I mean, I, I don't know what his words are, just his actions. It doesn't justify it, but it might go some way to explaining it. Alex, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really, really appreciate it. Very, very candid. And your story, uh, your book, where can people find out more about it? And where can people find more out about you? Well, alexsharkey.com, A-L-I-X-S-H-A-R-K-E-Y.com. And also, I've just agreed a development deal with a production company called sandpaper films in london so they are in the process of developing a television project about the story 
so we can keep an eye on that on your on your website we'll there'll be information about that coming up on there yeah that's the best great well i'll put a uh link in the synopsis to this episode as well so whatever device people were listening to this episode on can just scroll down past the synopsis we'll enter the synopsis and you'll see the link there to alexsharkey.com as well andy thanks very much no thank you thank you and thank you for listening if you can share the show and leave us a review it really does help hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain i learned this the hard way after losing my cat gingy so i created pretty litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors saving you money and potentially your cat's life pretty litter is veterinarian developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.